Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. All right, people, you know that sound that is the unfiltered band. It means another episode of Unfiltered comes your way here and now. Officially, this will go down as episode 116 of Unfiltered. It's an October Unfiltered live on a Monday, a Halloween Monday as we get set for game three of the World Series as it shifts back to the city of brotherly love as the Philadelphia Phillies into a Syndergaard host Lance McCullers and the Houston Astros with the series even at one. You are in an even better spot because you're with us. You can get on board the Unfiltered Revolution at Casey Stern anytime. Hop in the bio and you'll see my YouTube channel where you can catch us live as we are right now at noon Eastern time on a daily basis throughout the conclusion of the 2022 baseball season in this World Series, as well as Believe's YouTube, that's B-L-E-A-V, and of course, live on Twitter. And you can chat all three of those ways along the way, and I'll get your thoughts on board as we go on for it'll be about uh, the next 90 minutes here. And thank you, Unfiltered Band. And welcome back to another episode of October Unfiltered. Busy show today. Mark Feinstein going to join me in a few minutes. MLB.com, MLB Network, Billy King, a friend, former teammate over at Turner, and a guy who uh, knows a thing or two about running teams in Philadelphia, does he not? And now just a diehard Philly fan rooting for this club. Get a chance to have Billy on. Looking forward to that. And my guy Jim Duquette back on board the show in about an hour or so to give us the GM's perspective, looking down on the field of what's transpired in the first two games of the series and what to expect as we go forward here beginning in game three with this next group here in Philadelphia. As always, we are happy to be presented by the group over at Bet Online. Basketball's back. Bet Online remains your number one source. All your sports betting needs this season. Latest odds, team matchup info, player news, and game trends over at Bet Online is your continued source for all your sports wagering information. Bet Online's got live betting, free contests, and giveaways all season long. It's always the fastest and easiest way to bet your favorite sports and events, whether NFL, NBA, NHL, MMA, tennis, boxing, even golf. It's simple. Get over to betonline.ag. That's betonline.ag. You can join and get your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use this promo code. It's BELIEVE, B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. It's BetOnline, where the game starts as we get started here, previewing, getting you set for Game 3. Again, Billy King, Jim Duquette still to come, and in the leadoff spot, if you will, because he is spry and knows how to work account, my guy, Mark Feinstein. Hello, sir. And you must be proud wearing those colors I expected today after Mr. Heineke yesterday. How are you? Hottest team in the NFL this side of Philadelphia, right? <laughs> yeah, I, it's funny. The Giants and Jets crashed down to earth. But it is, uh, it, it's amazing what happens when you have belief. And that guy sitting there wearing number four in the QB spot for your team certainly has that. It's something the Phillies have had the whole way through. I'm sure you're not su- surprised to see that this has the potential to be a long series. As you look before this series began, how did you try and kind of manage the dichotomy mark between the momentum of the Phillies and all those common sense sort of things that tell you that the Astros are just a better baseball team? I think we may have talked about this last time. I I just thought when you go into a series, a short series, best of seven, with Nola and Wheeler pitching four, possibly five games in that series, uh, and you have a lineup the way Philly has – Houston should be favored in this series, and they were. But to think that Philly couldn't hang with Houston, given those two starting pitchers, that lineup, and a vastly improved bullpen that has pitched pretty well in the playoffs. And I loved Rob Thompson going to Ranger Suarez in game one. It was one of those like, hey, we just battled back from 5-0. We're not just going to give this up. And this is a guy 
to face, you know, Alvarez and Tucker here. I, I loved that. It was sort of, you don't think about what's coming down the road, game three, game four. You got to win game one. And Rob Thompson went ahead and, and did what it had to do to get that done. And the irony is, you know, and I said this more before that game, part of that was knowing he's got Wheeler in that game two spot. And I, I said, you know, look, I know Wheeler's the, the ace of this team. And with Joe Torre all those years that Andy Pettit pitched game two, Pettit maybe wasn't the ace, but he always was the ace in the postseason. There was just a different feel knowing he was pitching game two. And Rob Thompson clearly aggressive knowing or thinking at least at the time, right, that Wheeler would go deep into the game. Uh, you know, he exhausts his bullpen. He's able to get a win. And the Astros battle back in game two. I know you've watched the Ascension like we all have of Framber Valdez. What's impressed you most about watching what he's been able to do this postseason comparatively with the emotions specifically, Mark, than what happened a year ago where he doesn't get out of the third inning either time? Well, I think, you know, you learn from those experiences. And so when you when you go through those shortened starts and you uh, you can look back and figure out what you weren't doing right, he just seems very calm out there. He just seems like a guy who knows his place, knows how good his year was. Um, you know, he'd be in the Cy Young mix if not for the 39-year-old pitching next to him. And I think Valdez just knows that, you know what? He's not a national name. He's not a household name yet. Hitters know who he is, and they know what they're in for when they go up there against him. And he's just gone out there and, and done his job. He's, uh, you know, he's one of the, the best young pitchers in the game. And uh, I think you know when you go through those struggles uh, in the postseason – you have to learn from them or else you're not going to get better. And he's clearly learned from them. I've asked a bunch of people this question, including you know, people who are in the game and play it. Forget about being, you know, covering it as long as we have and you a little lo longer than I have. But, you know, Mike Stanton being among them who have asked, did you ever hear of this rule with Maldonado and Pujols with the bat? Because it's amazing how this deep into watching the game, I'd never <clears throat> heard of the grandfathered in clause of I could use a bat. You can't. You, did you even know that that was a thing before this story broke? I forgot. I remember when they changed the specifications of what bats could be used. Because if you remember, there were, you know, about, what, 10, 12 years ago at this point, there were a lot of instances of, of bats that were just getting getting broken a lot and flying back at pitchers. And there were some injuries. And, uh, you know, they tried to make the game safer for the pitchers. And, and you know, the guys who were standing essentially 57 feet away after they released the ball – um, so I remember when they put some different specifications in, I don't know that I ever realized that players have been grandfathered in to be using, you know, the old bats or not. Um, but you know, of course, when everybody hears about this, they're like, Oh, here we go. The Astros are cheating again. Right. They're cheating. Right, of course. Cheating. Right. <laughs> there was no advantage to this. This was just a safety issue. Clearly Maldonado had no idea. It wasn't like he's no. been using them all year. And, uh, uh, you know, Albert Pujols apparently was one of the guys grandfathered into this. I would imagine that uh, there aren't very many left at this point, but uh, this was a, a big old non-story to me. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that. I, I, the reason I it's kind of a prelude to another question. You know, I a lot of people have asked and fans have asked. You know, do you think? That, that things have kind of blown over with what happened in 2017. And the way I've looked at it is, you know, with this team specifically in 2022, maybe for some, I think it depends if you root for or played for the teams who played them, right, and were against them in 2017. But to see the Valdez conversation about the sticky stuff and he's not cheating and to see the Maldonado bat, how much are these signs that, you, you know what, everybody outside of Houston still looking at the Astros, Mark, especially with guys like Altuve and Bregman still on the team as those Astros with the garbage cans. Well, I think that's it. Is it there's only, I think, if I'm not mistaken, maybe five players left on the roster from 2017. 
But that includes Jose Altuve and Alex Bregman and Yuli Gurriel and Verlander. Not that Verlander was benefiting the trash cans, but, uh, you know, I just, I think when you have three of the nine guys in the starting lineup, including two of the biggest stars on the team, you're not going to detach yourself from that team so fast. And New York and Los Angeles are never going to stop thinking about it. They're never going to stop thinking that without those sign stealing issues, they would have won the world series that year. Uh, look, people don't like the Astros for the most part outside of Houston. Uh, I, living in the New York, New Jersey area, having plenty of people in my life who detest Philadelphia teams, they're rooting for the Phillies. Yeah, that's right. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing. Root for the Astros. They're sort of. It is amazing. Like, it's amazing. This is ter- This is you know. This is like for a Yankee fan back in '86. Mets, Red Sox. It's like that's right. I, I just hope the whole thing just craters into the ocean or something because I don't want to root for either of these teams. That's where people are now. Nobody wants to root for the Astros unless you are an Astros fan. And that's not going to go away anytime soon. Yeah, it is uh, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. I mean, really, you met fans that I know, Padre fans. I mean, teams you would never think. They just lost this team. Yeah, anybody but outside of Dusty Baker. It's always what you hear. Yeah, if Dusty wins, I'm okay with that. But I don't want the team to win, right? Which, of course, those things can't work. Uh, We talked the last time I had you on about uh, getting to see Rob Thompson's story. And I wrote this down when I knew you were coming on because I wanted to ask you about this from game one. To see David Robertson, a guy that you covered for so long, Long, have the story that he had and i think people when they hear the story think about okay well the celebration which was you know unfortunate but i'm talking about the you're kind of out of the league out of sight out of mind you have to resurface as even a guy let alone a guy who at the trade deadline was a highly sought after back-end reliever to then be in a spot where you're striking it out alvarez right and you're finding your way through that inning how good did you feel from him knowing him that he's been able to kind of put this story together at this one of these final chapters of his career yeah i mean i'm a little biased here i've known dave since he was in the minor leagues and uh he's always been one of my favorite guys in the game so i was very happy to see him uh come up with that when he hit diaz with that pitch and and before the umpire had even signaled no you're not hit by the pitch you could see dave was about to go after him with the plate uh like whoa 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 so i I was stunned to see the call overturned like that, you know, to see them hold up the not which is great, pitch, which is great, which is great because he absolutely dips into yeah, that. Oh, it's terrible. You've heard the, yes. If you've heard that the uh, Spanish audio, audio that they caught. Yeah, it's fantastic. Fantastic. It's fantastic. Uh, but no, look, Robertson was a guy who, you know, signed with Philly injury problems. Uh, and, and you wondered if he was ever going to get that chance again. He made seven appearances with the Phillies during his first two years there. Uh, you know, obviously didn't come back for the third. The option wasn't picked up and, uh, and he was wondering if he was going to pitch again. He ended up pitching for Team USA, uh, pitched well there enough to get a little a little brief stint with the Rays, where he pitched really well, came back, signed with the Cubs this year, and I think the idea was, you know, here's the thing. Here's what's crazy about baseball. Any team could have had David Robertson uh, in, in March or April or whenever the lockout ended and everybody started signing. He signed for like $2.5, million, $3 million uh, with the Cubs. Any team could have had him. Cubs signed him, used him, turned him into a nice trade piece coming in July, uh, early August. And, and the Phillies said, you know what? Rob Thompson knows him. Kevin Long knows him. He knows Philly. He's been there. It's been a great story. And, you know, he's not going in there to be the closer, but he's a piece of that bullpen uh, that with Alvarado and Dominguez and Eflin, they've, they've really put together something there. And to me, that group is the one that's going to make or break it for Philly because I think the lineups are pretty close. The top of the rotation is closed. The middle, you know, the three, four is not necessarily, but Philly's have enough offense to, 
you know, to make uh, McCullers and, and, uh, and Javier work. So to me, the bullpen being able to hold a lead once they get one, assuming they do, uh, that's going to be what makes or breaks this for Philly. Yeah, I'm with you and, and Mark Feinstein joining us. And I think there's a lot of pressure on them to be nearly flawless during this series, which is not easy. But I agree with you. And I want to go back to Suarez for a second. I'm not in the conversations, whether it be with Hill, the pitching coach, or with Rob Thompson, or, or knowing exactly, you know, how much, you know, that throw, right, which is not a side, you're getting, you know, amped up, you strike out Alvarez, to all of that. I don't know how much that affects him, but I was surprised to not see him in game three because going back to a point you made, when Rob Thompson was interviewed down in the field during that game, he said, I'm feeling we just tied this game. I'm not letting that go away. You're now 1-1, and you're in Philly. And the momentum, with the second you get out on that field, going to be so much in your favor. And Syndergaard is kind of an unknown. You really don't know how deep you can go, what you're going to get out of him. Maybe he goes four innings, and it's great. Maybe he goes four hitters, and it's a nightmare. Are you surprised that even if Suarez was shortened a bit, Mark, that he's not the starter in game three? Well, Thompson said yesterday when he was asked about that, that by by using him game four, they'll probably get 20 to 25 more pitches out of him. That's significant. That That's at least an inning, maybe two. So uh, I think given how Houston's lineup can, you know, can work counts and really make a pitcher work, if you're going into a game where you're thinking he's going to only be able to throw 75 pitches, that could be three innings. So uh, I wasn't surprised, you know, certainly once you heard that, you're like, all right, well, if the extra day is that meaningful to him physically to get him back up to 100 pitches or so, uh, you were going to throw a bullpen game in one of these two games, right? Either Suarez is going to pitch game three and Syndergaard and company were going to pitch game four or vice versa. I think this actually, in some weird way, puts more pressure on Houston to win game three because this is the winnable game, like the really winnable game, not that they're not all winnable. This is the one Houston should win. You're getting Syndergaard, unknown quantity, uh, you know, followed by a bunch of other guys. Um, now this crowd's going to be crazy tonight. It's Halloween. I, I'm going down to Philly for this game. I'm a little scared. I can't lie. Uh, I've been, I've been out. <laughs> well, of you're not going to be in game. commander's gear or old Redskins no, gear. So no, you'll no, be no. fine. Gonna, you'll be all right. I'm not even going to be in commander's colors. Um, <laughs> I've been in that ballpark on Halloween for the world series. And it is, it's quite the scene. Um, you know, they're bringing out all these, different Philly former champions, Dr. J, Mike Schmidt, Brandon Graham, a couple of Bernie Parent, a couple other guys. It's going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. But I think this is the game. If the crowd can help will that lineup yeah. uh, or rattle McCullers and get them some runs, um, this is a game. If Philly steals this game, I really like their chances in this series. If Houston wins this game, I still like Philly's chances in game four to even the series up. But to me, the fact that Syndergaard's going and you sort of don't know what you're going to get, I think this makes this a really, really important game for Houston. Yeah, and I'm really curious to see how Rob Thompson manages with Syndergaard and where he goes next because, you know, I think they'll hit McCullers, I think, enough, especially in that park. I mean, look, the Phillies a tough team. To think. Lance may pitch five, six innings and give up three runs, which would be great. I don't think he's going to shut them out. So there's a chance you still be in the game, but where do you go, right? Because now you don't have the Suarez piece coming out. He's starting tomorrow. And Rob Thompson has that whole managing of the of in the now and in the moment. How much do you expect him to ride Alvarado 
and to ride Dominguez, especially early, if he's in a fourth, fifth inning where it's close, to your point, thinking now I've allowed Suarez to play a little bit longer tomorrow, and if I got a chance to take the momentum with Suarez on the back end, is this going to be similar to game three of last week, right, in the LCS, in the way that Rob Thompson manages this game if it's close in the middle innings, Mark? It could be. You know, the, you're facing a situation where you're going to have three games in a row, uh, and you have to make sure you have your bullpen available for all three. But at the same time, you can steal this game. You steal it, and you hope for the best in game four. Uh, winning this game would be sort of a bonus for Philly, I think. But, um, you know, these are the decisions that people get paid much more than we do to ultimately make. And, you know, they're going to be judged on the win or the loss, not the decision. If the decision works, it's a great decision. If the decision doesn't work and backfires, you're an idiot. Uh, unfortunately, this is the life of a manager. But I would imagine he would try to be aggressive and try to, uh, you know, if you're in position to win this game, if they're down by two runs, I don't think he's going to exhaust his big arms at the back of the bullpen. If they're up by two runs, you can bet he's going to do anything he can to try to hold that lead. Yeah, he's had a great feel for sure. Let me get two quick ones, uh, and then I'll let you run, and I appreciate this, and, and safe travels to Philly and in Philly, where I think you'll be fine as long as you don't wear that shirt and, uh, you know, just uh, you know start getting on any Eagle fans because they're pretty rowdy right now, if you haven't noticed, undefeated. Um, I Were you surprised that, that Bryson Stott didn't get the start? I know it's the lefty, but I'm watching his at-bats, Mark, and he has really, over the year, you could see him growing. Had that 10-pitch A-B against Verlander in game one, which he made out, but it was in the midst of them working Verlander. He comes cold off the bench in the game where Sosa played for him, and Hoskins should have had that grab. It's not about Sosa's throw. I'm sorry. He got to make that play. But are you surprised to against the lefty see Stott sit has he, in your mind, put himself in a position where maybe if that happens again later in the series, they see Valdez, where you just ride Stott the rest of the way? Because I'm watching his ABs. He looks as comfortable as anybody right now at the plate. Yeah, a little bit surprised. But at the same time, I think this is one thing that the teams and managers in particular do that I like, which is this is what we've been doing all year. And this is what helped us get where we are. We're not going to change our approach or change what we do because it's a World Series. I mean, obviously, if a guy's red hot, sure, maybe you make Stephen that. Stephen Pierce, that. right, 2018, you know, starting him against right, righties, for exactly. example. Right, you know, so there are exceptions. But generally speaking, I think managers try to keep these games feeling as normal as they can for their team. And if you come in and these guys are, are platooning against this guy and that guy, and that's how we've been doing it for four months as we've been on this big role, and that's what we've done throughout the whole playoffs – then you're going to keep doing it. And obviously you have the other guy on the bench to use in the spot where, uh, where appropriate. So uh, yeah, I like to see the hot, the hot hand get, get put in the lineup, but at the same time, these guys know their teams. They know what their, uh, you know, what their capabilities are and they know what sort of what got them where they are. Last thing for me, uh, you've covered a lot of world series and teams and it's hard to kind of quantify because you have to look at them all, but defensively, and Castellanos made a brilliant play, but he is not a brilliant outfielder, we know. Veerling, who came in for defense, gets caught flat-footed. Alvarez takes third base, right? Bohm's made a couple of dynamic plays. He's gotten better over the years, but still a little bit dicey. Hoskins, at first, is kind of a mess defensively, let's be fair. You got Schwarber, you're trying to rush to get out of there in left field. Is this as questionable defensive group outside of Real Muto as any World Series team you've covered, it isn't amazing in some ways that with all the defensive issues and holes they seem to have that they are able to get as far as they are now. 
one one in game three of the World Series. I haven't seen much of them play this year. Nick Castellanos looks like the best right fielder in the game to me. I don't know. <laughs> um, that play was incredible. And the fact that, that amazing. he comes up with that play. That was amazing. Uh, you know, I feel like, didn't he have one other really big He did play two weeks ago. He did. It, he did yeah. in the Atlanta series. He had another um, play. Yes. Look, you don't have to be a great fielder to come up with a gem once in a while, right? Uh, I've seen some pretty bad fielders come up with really good plays at the right time which sometimes that's what happens when a team goes on a run in the playoffs like this. Yeah, this is not a very good defensive team. And all year, we've been saying that. This has not been a fundamentally sound team. When Joe Girardi got fired, that was one of the big criticisms was they just don't, they don't catch the ball. They don't, they don't run the bases well. They can slug and they got a couple pitchers and that's it. Um, but they're coming up with the plays when they need to. And that's, you know, that's what you need to do to win a World Series. And right now they're three wins away from doing that. Safe travels uh, while you're uh, driving just to uh, think about something fun. Think about uh, being down 3 nothing to the defending champion Avalanche and coming back and winning after beating the Rangers and scoring six goals in Carolina, just to say we're, we're on a roll. See, at least let's let's take it three in a row as Islander fans. Enjoy that. And things, safe are, things are getting nice. And I got Kirk yes. Cousins coming back to D.C. next weekend. Hey, so. hey. Hey, as long as you Bring don't have on, Carson Kirk. Wentz coming back to D.C., you'll be fine. I don't ever want to see Carson Wentz in D.C. again. <laughs> Taylor Heineke, baby. We love him. Uh, I appreciate you, buddy. Thank you for doing this. You got it. All right. There he is. Mark Feinstein, as good as there is in the business and the even better person. We appreciate him for hopping on board. Billy King going to join us. Of course, a long time running the Sixers in Philadelphia. Now the diehard Philly fan and a friend of mine and one of the good dudes in sports and smart people will join me here in a few minutes. We'll talk some Phillies. Uh, Jim Duquette will be here at the top of the hour. You could jump in on the stream. There's three ways to do this if you want to chat. You could hop out open on Twitter and pop open the box and get in the chat with me and I can bring your stuff up live. You can do it in the YouTube as well, whether you're on my YouTube channel or believes. And of course, not discounting all the folks listening or watching uh, Apple, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcast belated here on October unfiltered. Want to hit a couple of things that Mark said before Billy gets in here. Um, I'm with him and I've talked about this. I'm with, I'm with, with fine sand on the idea that you don't want to, you don't want to make it, and Ned Yost said this two days ago. Look, you don't want to make it feel different because you're in a World Series because you want the players to feel like, hey, it's just another day. Embrace that it's a big game and a fun game, but you're not trying to be somebody you're not. You're not trying to do things that you didn't do to get here. There's a reason you're in this spot, and I buy into all of those things, right? And I also think that the way you manage, in some respects, you have to do it in the World Series and in the postseason the way you have the whole time. However, I watched speaking to Ned Yost, him getting a spot where he literally was in a in a press. He'd be the first to tell you this, you know, press conference, the first run that they made of the two. And again, without Mad Bum, they win two championships. The first run they made, he in a press conference getting killed afterwards in Kansas City late in the season because he's saying that uh, uh, Herrera, Kelvin Herrera, that's my sixth inning guy. So that's why I didn't go to him. Because it wasn't, it wasn't, or that's my seventh inning guy, and it was the sixth inning. Like, so regimented the way a lot of managers used to be. Some still are, right? They don't succeed because of it. But he was that way. Then he's in the Madison Bumgarner game, and they got, you know, Jeremy Guthrie, Jay Guts, terrific dude, and, and Honey, Tim Hudson on the hill, and they're in, like, the third, fourth inning, and here's Herrera in the fourth inning trying to get it. It was the right move because you got to adjust. Here's Alex Cora, who, like, Steve Pierce, he, he don't hit righties. Endeavors don't play against lefties. 
But in the middle of that series against the Dodgers, here's Devers against the lefty and Price and Pierce against the righty. And all of a sudden, there you go. Price doesn't pitch out of the bullpen. Here he's in the bullpen. Certainly not going to start two days later. Here, you got to do all of those things. And I know they didn't win the 17-inning game the way he rolled Evaldi in that game. You have got to, if you are going to manage and be successful in a World Series, I do agree with Mark that there is a large part that has to be about here is what we have done to get to this point. Here is who we've been. And we are going to stick to that because we know what's successful. We're not going to panic because panic is, I love Booney. I don't think going to Bader in the leadoff spot because the way he hit and he hit well. And five home runs in the postseason was hitting the ball. But I think you go change the lineup three times in the three days after that. And then all of a sudden you're looking like you're panicking to me. Now you're trying too much. And now the players can feel you don't know you don't know the field. You're not sure who's who's in the right spot. You're not sure what it's supposed to look like. And if I think that you're not sure, how the hell am I going to trust you as a manager? You're the one who's supposed to calm me down and get my heart rate and my pulse back to where it's supposed to be to go succeed, to slow the game down, as they say. But I think in a spot like this, we've seen Rob Thompson go the other way so much. I mean, look, he'd never in a regular season go there. You could tell me all you want about how this is what we do. You're not putting Suarez in that spot normally. Not going to Alvarado that, that early normally. Dominguez, a game three last week. You're not doing that early, that early in a regular season. You got to do some things different. For me, for Philadelphia, kind of is what it is defensively. Lefty, righty, look, we're talking about seven, eight in the lineup anyway. In terms of Stott and Barsh, those guys, they're they're in there for me. Veerling not going to play. I'm not putting him in in that spot. It's just not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. I, I think when you look at the scenario that you have with the Philadelphia Phillies, they have been so good and riding so much momentum that – it's carried them to this point in large part, but at the same time, now they're going to have to be better within margins that they're normally not great in. They're going to have to make the defensive plays to, to the point of what Mark said. If Nick Castellanos is not going to be a great fielder, he got to make that play. I mean, he made a sparkling grab in the ninth inning. Outside of JT Real Muto, you don't know what you're getting in most of the spots defensively, but you got to find better defense. You guys are going to have to step up. They're going to have to be better. Because you cannot give the Astros additional opportunities constantly. You just can't do it. Astros going to kill you. Saw it in the Yankees series with Garrett Cole with the pop-up between Bader and Judge. And all of a sudden, here's Chaz McCormick. And boom, gone. Home run. And Cole down 2 nothing. You can't give extra opportunity. You can't turn the ball over against the Golden State Warriors. You can't make errors or bad defensive plays that might not officially be errors to give extra chances and extra opportunities to teams like the Houston Astros. You just can't do it. Can't. So they're going to have to play good. And look, the, the margin of error is going to be way smaller with Noah Syndergaard because we got no idea what Noah Syndergaard's going to do. That That's the fascinating part of game three. I mean, nobody's going to be surprised if dot, dot, dot. Noah Syndergaard pitches three and two-thirds innings, gives up a run, is up four to one, and is off to a standing ovation. They go to the bullpen in the fourth, and they try and hold it down, figure it out. No one's going to be surprised if Noah Syndergaard four batters into the game down three, nothing. And they're already warming somebody up in the bullpen and he's faltering like Mr. Falter did. Who's not on the roster a week ago in game four. Nobody's going to be surprised if Noah Syndergaard sitting there and pitching great through three innings. And you're like, holy crap, look what's happening. And then you don't get the bullpen up fast enough. And now you blew a three to nothing lead. You have no idea what you're getting at all. That's what makes this game tonight. So interesting. and so crazy. Now to be fair, 
Going into game two, we thought we all knew what Zach Wheeler was going to do. And four pitches in, you got two runs and three doubles. And what the hell just happened? Baseball, not, you know, it, 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 you can put it on a script all you want, right? In the NFL, you can go script the first 15 plays. You got no idea what's going to happen. When all of a sudden the center, the snap is fumbled and, you know, you're on your own 18 playing defense instead. Like, you got no idea. So in a spot like this, it, so much is riding on. Can Syndergaard keep this offense with that crowd in the game long enough? Because Lance McCullers is a guy who's going to keep you in the game. He's a competitive, gutsy guy. He's going to give you a chance to win. But the chances are he's not going to dominate you. The chances are he's going to give you some leeway. Especially the thing to watch with McCullers, and I've seen him for years. Anybody who watches Lance McCullers, his fastball command is a problem. You know, one of the reasons he goes to those other three pitches so often, especially that curveball, is because they're way more effective than that fastball. He's not throwing it that hard. It's it's hard for him to spot. He's not sitting there four quadrants and dotting eyes and crossing T's with it. That's not what that is. He is finding a way to sneak it and shoot it by you when you're expecting a curveball so he can get it on the inner part of the plate and get you for a strike or get you to swing and miss because you're over-anxious if it's up in the zone because it looks so hittable. And he's trying to get ahead in some counts with it when he sees that you're patient or thinks you're going to be in an at-bat because then he can go ahead and flip that curveball on you in the dirt and get a swing and a miss, much like Valdez was doing to this team all night in game two. That's the approach. But McCullers is a guy whose fastball command, sometimes he, against the Yankees, go back a week ago, he didn't find it for like three innings. And then pitched very well and kept him in a game. And if you saw the way he started the game, you would have thought, well, there's no way this is going to continue. He, he could walk guys. He could be wild. He's going to give the Phillies a chance to be in this game. I mean, Javier right now, ironically, look, I get it. You know, starting game four, I know what McCullers has been, and it's a great story, too, to get him back healthy. Pitch the eight starts at the back end of the year. Then you get the celebration snafu, one of two, Robertson on the other side, right? where he goes and he's got to start game four last week. But Javier, a guy who nearly no-hit the Yankees at the end of the season and was terrific against them in game three a week ago. You're going to get better starts from both of the starters in game four of this series than you're going to get in game three, where I think there's a very good chance we're sitting here now. Always ends up the opposite. But I think the way it looks, at least on paper, that being what it is, you could be sitting there 5-5 five, five and a fifth, and the Phillies are not supposed to win those kind of games against the Astros because the Astros are so, so deep. But they've been able to do that, which has been so, so impressive because Philadelphia is not just everybody talking about the momentum that they've ridden, but the Philadelphia Phillies are riding a bullpen that's just been dynamic and deep and has done everything you could ever ask for them and been brilliant. And I know Philly fans are going to be crazy and it's Halloween, so it's ramped up to some kind of freakish level. So let's get a, a, a chance to find out about the pulse in that city of brotherly love as uh, one of my favorite people and smartest people in sports knows a thing or two about running teams in Philadelphia. And now just a diehard fan. And by the way, a fan of baseball, because I want to get to talking about your boy as we welcome in Billy King. How are you, sir? I'm good, Casey. How are you? I'm doing great, man. So first of all, give for the people who are not in Philly, they live on the West Coast. They're watching these crowds. These are no surprises to you, clearly. But can you try and explain for a guy who even because like I think about like in college terms, right? Duke, just a different animal. Like you've seen yes. it in like in all sorts of levels. But what about Philly is just different than everywhere else you've been in terms of sports towns? Well, I mean, it's a sports town and it's a sports town for 
every sport. Um, you know, they're celebrating last night because the, the union, our soccer team, is going to the finals. And so, you know, they're, they're celebrating that. Then you've got the Eagles who are 7-0. and And then you've got the, you know, Phillies obviously in the World Series. When I used to be a GM here, I always said, as a basketball team, we had to make sure we were playing our best when football ended because that's when the focus is going to come to you. Everyone here, you know, they were, weren't were sure about the Phillies because they lost some games at the end. But once they made it and then they beat St. Louis, everybody jumped on and they're they're passionate about it. They're That's all everybody's talking about. It, it, you'd be amazed. We have a football team that's undefeated, the only undefeated in the NFL, and they can't get coverage because everybody's talking about the Phillies. And to me, I've never been part of a city. You know, you said I went to Duke and it was great. But for a city that, you know, lives and dies with their teams winning and losing, um, every loss hurts, whether it's regular season or playoffs, and every win, it's like you won the Super Bowl. That's how passionate they are about it here. And that's why people say it's Philly, they're tough. No, they're tough. They, they, they just want to win. I think the fans here hate losing more than they hate winning. I mean, more than they love winning. That's, that probably put it in, in perspective. I noticed, by the way, and you mentioned, and look, as a Giant fan, you're going to tell me about the Eagles, but you didn't mention the Sixers there, but we'll leave that alone. For now. Well, and the reason, and, and, and the reason, I, the reason I, I did that is because of the fact that they're not on the radar right Ooh. now because they're just yeah. starting well, and, it might and be they're good not news. playing that well. Yeah, that they're might be not good playing news. that well. Yeah. That might be good so, news. I want to I want to ask you about Bryce specifically because you know I, I've I've always said this about and and AI one of my you know favorite players as a fan to watch it in any sport. You know he had you know there were the acorns that were like you know way bigger than his height. Like he just like he wasn't afraid. You can't be afraid to play in Philadelphia. How much does Bryce remind you of all the guys who you've seen have succeeded in this city? And how much is that a huge part of it to have Billy as different kind of a fortitude? And I'm not trying to get on Ben Simmons specifically, but there is a category of you can't show weakness, right? If you're playing in Philadelphia. Well, the main thing is they just want you to give everything you had. I mean, they want you to go out and compete and play as hard like Bryce. He's trying to steal bases. He's diving for loose balls. He embraced it from day one when he got here. He embraced the, the the mascot, the fanatic. He embraced the city. He embraced the Eagles. And that's what they want. They want you to be one of them. They want to be able to see you at Wawa uh, getting coffee or getting a hoagie. <laughs> right. You know, right. they want to see you. At the, they want at you to be local, local, right? They want yeah, you to be local. Want, yeah, and they know in the offices you may not live here, but when you're here, they want you to be a part of it. And when you're not here and you're talking about it, they want you to talk passionate about them. And that's that's something that Alan did. I mean, they would see the Bentley at Taco Bell, the drive-in or at, at, at Fridays. So he was one of them. Uh, Brian Dawkins, Jason Kelsey does the Mummers Parade. If you embrace the city, they will embrace you. If they feel like you're not embracing the city and you're just here to play, then they're not going to embrace you. Guys like Reese Hoskins, I assume you got to have a lot of respect. I've been saying this from the outside. It's like, you know, we know he's not a good defensive first baseman. Had a play he should have made in the last game. He's been crushed by the fans. He can't turn on WIP, I'm sure. And I know hosts there tell me that without people calling for months about he's a DH or he shouldn't play or, you know, because the expectations, he had a home run like almost every at-bat, Billy, when he first came up. But... How much do you admire knowing having players on? Were there players on your Sixers teams that that you kind of watch them 
earn and gain the respect because of the toughness they had, maybe getting booed, kind of getting ridden a little bit by the city and fighting through that and coming out the other side? How much different is the feel for that city with players who are tough enough to handle it, Billy, and then come throughout the other side like Hoskins has? Well, and, and that's the big thing is they want you to embrace it. If, if you make a mistake, don't try to hide and say, come up with an excuse. Own it. And Alec Baum, for example, early in the year, he had three errors in one game. And he, they caught him, you know, saying something about the fans. And he owned it. And and then he went on, worked at it and played. And now they love him. If he would have said, I didn't say that, what are you talking about? Then the city would have turned on him. But you, you have to own, if you make a mistake, own it and say, I got to play better, and then they'll love you. Is it, Does that make, just to kind of you kind of go off your track just a little bit, because I want to go back here, but does that make, is the Ben Simmons story in Philly a sad story? Like, when you look back at it, is it an unfortunate story? Like, how do you try and put your finger on a guy who had is so much talent, but it, it seemed, because here's the thing, and you tell me if I'm wrong, from the outside, People look at the the shot with with Steph where he doesn't dunk right where he passes it or with Trey Young on him where he, you know he doesn't dunk. They look at not shooting. I look at Philly fans notice that they got to him, and he seemed to wear that all the time. Is it a sad story what happened with Ben in Philadelphia? How do you kind of look back at that? It, it is because when I was the gym, I spent a lot of time talking to the guys about, you know, I had a player and I won't say his name, but, you know, it was during the 2001 era and he was hurt. It wasn't going to play. And I went up to him and said, look, if you're not playing, you can't be out partying because the city will turn on you. If you're hurt, you can't go out and party. And he didn't understand it. And he did. And they turned on him. And, you know, he ended up not being here long. And he left and, um, and that's what I would talk to guys about, like certain things you've got to say or, or do um, because this city will turn. With Ben, I think after that play with Trey Young, if he just said, you're right, I should have dunked it and I thought somebody was open, but that point of the game, I got to go up and stronger or say, look, I'm going to I'm going to work this summer. I got to get better at my free throws, you know, in order for us to go where I've got to get better at it. They would embrace him. But when you sort of take the attitude like, I, I didn't do anything wrong. What do you, why are you guys criticizing me? That's when they start saying, well, obviously, you know, we noticed you did something wrong. It, once you own it, and I think if Ben would have owned it and said, you're, they're right, that play, I had to make it. I got to dunk. And he didn't. And I think he probably was afraid if I own it, what are they, how are they going to react? I think they would have reacted great and said, yep. And there would have been some that would have still been on him. But I think they would have reacted, you know, better than the way he handled it. And they're okay because here's the thing: they're great with humanity. They're great with vulnerability. They're just yeah. they're just not great with. You got to be real. The sincerity yeah. of Philadelphia, right? It's the one city for me. It, it, right or wrong or different, they're sincere. This is some real authentic people that you're gonna yeah. find on Halloween tonight. Um, speaking of which, uh, that crowd. How much of a motivator and difference maker is it for teams in Philadelphia when you watch your Cubs go take the floor in Philly at home and you see the environment? I know you've been at it, Citizens Bank Park in these games. Just how much can the players ride from that, Billy? Because you know, we've seen teams lose on the road. Look, in 2019, the Nationals won four games on the road. It's possible to win on the road. We get that. You're not going to think you can't win in Philly. But how much of a difference maker and advantage is it specifically for that crowd tonight for those teams in Philly? 
Well, I think it lifts the, the the Phillies players, the home team, for sure. I think when they know they go up to bat, they've got 40, 45,000 people, 46,000 behind them cheering for them. Uh, when they make a play, they, they know that they're cheering. And then for the opposing team, they're on them. They're on them when they go to the dugout. If you go to right field, left field, they're on you from the field at first base. They're going to be on you the whole game, win or lose. They're not going to let up. And I, and I think it does affect you because – if you know you're playing left field and you got to go out there every inning and that same guy's going to be yelling at you every inning, every inning, it, it could, it could wear on you. It's, it's not like in football where, you know, you go down the field and you don't, you know, but it, you know, even in football, when you know, you go to your sideline, they're yelling at you. Um, but when you're in left field, you're out there by yourself. There's no teammates to, to cover for you. Or if you're in right field or you're in center, they're going to yell at you and, you and you walk out there, you see that one guy, you know, perfect example, when they opened the ballpark, I had season tickets for the first 10 years. The dugout you'll see is in the outfield, and there's a two-tier dugout. The, you know, when the first release dugout was at the top, and the visitors was below, and so it was closest to the fans. The bull, Phillies bullpen said, no, 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 we got to switch that. And they did. They put the visitors up top and the Phillies <laughs> down low. Because if you're in the bullpen, even if you're a Philly fan, you're not pitching well. You're going to hear from them the whole, you know, and so now the visiting bullpens, they hear it all nonstop while they're out there. So I think it's a huge impact, a huge advantage for her. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be there tonight, and I just know that they're going to – I was listening to a guy this morning on the radio saying he's got a trash can he, as his Halloween costume. Oh, he's, the, he's you making, know that that's going to happen. You yeah. know, Philly, you know, you know they're going to be <laughs> clanging those trash cans. They're going to be bringing those signs. Philly fans – are relentless. I know a guy knows Philly as well as anybody. Of course, longtime yeah. team president and GM uh, with the Sixers. Go ahead, Billy. One quick story. One take doing the COVID, yeah. Go ahead, please. You because know, they they wouldn't let people in the building. So there was a group of fans. You know, when they were playing games with no fans, they would go to the center field where you could see through the fence, and they were out there making noise. It was like thirty or forty or fifth of them every game would stand outside and cheer. And the visiting team, they started complaining about them because they were making so much noise. But they were outside the ballpark. They were bringing <laughs> horns and everything. And they call it what I think they call it the the pandemic crew. And they went down there every game during COVID, even though they couldn't get in. They went every game. I love that. I, I've I've said this before. I've covered baseball twenty years. I remember being in Arizona in two thousand seven. Not trying to get on a specific city. But here's game one of an NLCS, and with two outs and two strikes in the first inning, Brandon Webb, who was a Cy Young candidate on the Hill, they had to put on the big board to stand. I've, I've seen some places where you still, they don't get it. The Philly fans, they stood the whole game, Billy. I never seen anything like that last week. I'm telling you because, look, New York's not like, New York's great crowd. It's not yeah. like that. I mean, Philly fans, no. you would think they've never been here before. It's pretty amazing. I want to hit you with two more. One, um, I, I, and I didn't know this when I went to look at your Twitter. I didn't know your son was playing baseball. I, oh, I yeah. love, I, I love the. So for Billy, you can get over and get at his Twitter at BK Defend. I, you've got a play from your son Reggie with a throw from center field, and I love this. Can you take me through? So, so he's playing college. Talk to me about your boy. How proud no, no, you got no. This that, that was high school. I mean, not high school. It was eighth year. He's just a freshman this year, so that was this. Oh summer. my goodness! Okay. Yeah, he's, uh, he plays for a travel team. They happen to be playing down at uh, North Carolina. That game was at Duke, actually. Oh, okay, okay. So they're down. playing at Duke, where the okay, yeah, and he, and he plays center field. He's got a pretty good arm, and so um, and it's funny early in the game season, if somebody will try to run early in the first inning, 
the mo- the best plays to throw it to second, but his coaches say, you know, throw it home so they know the arms so they don't try to run on them. But this game, the, late in the game, the guy was trying to, you know, score from second. And as you saw, it one hop right to the catcher. catcher oh, yeah. Really tagged him out. yeah. I mean, come on now. You're not kidding. Now, I, I, the question is, would, you know, with Brandon Marsh's hair, um, at center field, I don't know. Is that like who's the center? Does he have a center fielder? Because first of all, I love the like I love the I love the the attitude of the Philadelphia Phillies. Their defense, like defensive center field, is not necessarily their thing. Does he have a guy that's like his guy that he watches in the league, or like that he's been you know? Because for you know people like you and I, we've got obviously the juniors and the Tory Hunters and many others. Yeah. Obviously, like who Andrew Jones? Who's who's his guy in the outfield? Well, I mean, I mean, growing up, I mean, he was a big fan of Jimmy Rollins, who was here. He was a shortstop because oh, yeah, sure. he wanted sure. to play in the infield. But, um, sure. yeah, I don't think he's really just locked into just the outfield. I think he, he he likes the game of baseball. He's been playing it and, and loves the strategy of it, knows the rotations or who's coming in. Um, so, so he's just a big fan of baseball. I, I mean, I think he does like Marsh because of the fact when they got him because he, he is good defensively when they picked him up. Um he was. He said he's not as good a hitter, but he's become better hitter now than they got him. He liked pickup of Sosa because of his defense. Um, thought they needed that, but um, he, he's not just locked into the one one's position. Uh, he he was a big fan of Didi before he you know they, they let him go. Um, obviously, everybody loves Bryce. You know, you can't. Well, um, how can you not? How can you not? Yeah. I, I got to ask. You, this is the most important question before before you you leave. Yeah, we got weird traditions in baseball. We don't have in basketball. When the wave comes around, does Billy King and family get up and do the wave? No, no, no. Oh, thank and, you. See, I and, knew we were friends for a reason. Yeah. I, and, and, come on. In it, 1980, it, 1970, maybe, but not now. It still happens, though. It's amazing. Like, I'm like, who are these people that are still doing the wave? Like, everybody's always like, you're on Halloween. Like, why aren't we banning candy corn? For me, the wave, uh, not a thing. Are, are you picking the Phillies tonight? You got Syndergaard on the mound. Are you worried? I'm not worried about our, our pitching. I, I what worries me is is just their their hitting. I don't you know I, I they can hit the ball. We can't let them get out on a lead on us. But I do like the fact that we've got our bullpen. You know we didn't use a lot of the the main guys we used in game one. So we got you know our, some our Sir Anthony. You know so we got Alvarez. So we've got some bullpen. And this will be you know if we can get four innings out of out of Syndergaard, I'll be happy. If we get five, I'll be ecstatic. But um, to me, it's what I love about uh, the manager Thompson is he just manages the game. He's not looking at some chart. He gets a feel of how the game's going to momentum and he'll bring guys in and put them in situations. And I think all the players know he communicates with them. I may need you earlier or not. So to, that's what I love is it, he's managing baseball. Like you manage a basketball game or it's, it's not off of a chart. Um, so I have all faith in him that, Whatever Syndergaard gives us, he's got a plan to, to, to take care of it from a manager standpoint. So we'll be you okay. Know, Billy, if, if I could just follow real quickly on that, because I'm curious because you bring up an interesting point. You you had to – all coaches are hired to be fired. It's unfortunate. Yes. This is the way it is. GM's the same way, right? It is <laughs> what it is. Um, you've had to be in that spot. Joe Girardi is a – I mean, he's a terrific baseball man. He's a terrific manager. He just wasn't the right fit. How do you, can you take, take me through, were there situations like that where, you know, you sit there and, and you know, Hey, look, maybe this coach is a, is a, 
better coach for other teams, but this guy is the one for my team. Like, how much is Rob Thompson the right fit? And how difficult is that? When you look at Girardi, he's got all the credentials, Billy. Clearly, we know he can manage a baseball team, but you could tell Rob Thompson's a better fit for this team. Yeah, I mean, and it's happened to me where you get a coach and, you know, everything they do, preparation, it works. And But then you see that there's not a connection with the players. And, um, and, and that's the biggest thing. I think in hiring a coach, it's not as much about X's and O's. I think you got to find somebody that's a good leader. If you look at all the best coaches, Nick Saban, Coach K, and I love Coach K, but when I got there, he wasn't a great X and O guy. He was a great leader. And he put us in position, had us prepared to win the games. Bill Parcells, Jimmy Johnson, uh, you know, Joe Torrey, they're great leaders. And being part of a great leader is being able to communicate. There are a lot of guys that are great X's and O's, no matter what sport it is, but they can't communicate to the players. And especially at the pro level, in order to win, you've got to convince, whether it's in basketball or football, how many guys you have on the roster that they got to go out and play together as a unit. And that's the biggest challenge that guys have. And I think a lot of them are afraid to communicate with the guys and be honest with them. If you be honest and direct with them, they will respect you for that rather than taking a guy out and not playing them and then and then saying to the media, well, I just it was just a coach's decision. And if you're not telling the player why, then they they start losing trust. So it comes down to leadership. And I think I you know, I was on the phone with Joe Durardi uh, about a month before he got fired talking to him and great guy, great baseball mind. I think he could manage it just wasn't the right fit. And now that I'm in executive search that I'm doing, that's what I tell a lot of the clients is like not every candidate is for every job. You've got to figure out the city. Speaking of Philadelphia, you got to figure out, figure out the ownership group and the type of players on that team to find the right person that fits with them because you can't just put somebody in and say, well, they're a great coach. It's going to work. Well, no. Like Phil Jackson was smart enough. He knew which teams to go to, which not which not to go to, to make it work. And everybody said, well, he just picked teams that had great players. No, he picked teams that had players that were driven, like Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, that he could use and then mold the guys around them. So I think you got to find the personality he's got to be able to fit and be able to lead a certain group. Some guys may need a the Bobby Knight style. Some guys may need a more of a, a, a Brad Stevens hugging type style. And, and that's what it comes down to is finding that personality. And I think Topper here is it was the right fit. And, and one, he had been here, so he knew the guys. And I think sometimes as an assistant, they spend so much more time talking to guys behind the scenes, you know, getting them to play. And when they become the head coach, some guys change. I don't think he changed his personality. And so guys were able to, I was listening to, uh, uh, there was somebody who was talking, uh, CC Sabathia on the pregame on MLB. And he said, the great thing about Topper is when they're doing batting practice, players were coming over talking to manager and laughing and joking. He goes, he goes look, I, I've been on a lot of baseball teams. A lot of players don't talk to the manager in free time. He goes, but these guys were just coming over and talking to him. You can they like tell him. That, they trust. Yeah, him. there's a yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and that's that's why it's easy to go out and play when you know you can make a mistake and the guy's not going to yank you or get on you. Then you want to, you know, and as Coach Kater said, you go into the next play because the coach is going to allow you to go into the next play. If you know you got a short leash, it's hard to play any sport when you have a short leash. Yeah, I, I said this the other day, but Leo Mazzoni, uh, of course, Mr. Rock back and forth pitching coach with the Braves all those years, said to me about 20 years ago on the air, he said, coaching at the big league level is knowing where to, to blow smoke and where to light fire. 
And it's a great lesson in any leadership, parenting and all of that, because not everyone's the same. Like I know with my three kids, right? You got to be kind of easier going with one. Others need a little bit of yeah. a, like a motivation. Every, but players are that way too, Billy, right? Yeah. And the thing to me about Rob Thompson that stands out is that you could tell he's learning about them and understands them and knows them. And he's got an idea of whose army can kind of go around, right? And and where he's got to do that. To your point, it's, you know, somebody said to me years ago who played for the Joe Torre Yankees, he said, I never thought, and this is somebody who was on all those teams, he said, yeah, I never thought Joe Torre was the best manager in the game, but he was the best manager of people. And yeah. and that's most of the job. Yeah, that is. That's human. That's the, the egos, yeah. Billy. Yeah. You know, they kind of yeah. got egos in this sport. You think, and, you know, because well, <laughs> um, you know, like I said before, like modern exec solution, that's what I joined. I think you're still in Atlanta, aren't you? Are you still based yeah, in Atlanta? Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. yeah still, and that's yeah. where our headquarters is, modern exec solutions. And that's why I went into search because Coach K said something uh, when he talked to us. He says, look, I'm going to treat you all fairly, but I'm not going to treat you all equally. And that's the biggest thing is that he says, I'm not going to treat someone that has made so many mistakes over and over had to the same the same as the person's done anything right he goes to me that's not fair and he is the other thing he always said people that have a lot of rules are people that don't want to make decisions i love that he says, and, and he, yeah. he knew who to ride to he yeah. rode yeah. some of his guys but you mentioned Bill ourselves are the same way look i grew up a giant fan I used to think Phil Sims would need therapy at halftime just to get back out there because of what Bill was doing to him. But to your point, Coach K, it seemed like you tell me because, you know, I've heard you know, JJ tell many stories and a lot of players and Grant and people over the years like, you know, it's he knew which guys he could ride. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, he he rode me like, you know, he could yell at me and he knew I would just take it and be ready to go the next day. And there was other teammates that he yelled you know, it was going to take a week to get them back in the fold. And so so he would maybe yell at me rather than yell at them. And I understood what he was trying to do. Then it was my job to figure out how to get this person to play better. Um, but that's that to me, that's that's what coaching is all about. It's it's not figuring out how you're going to score in a play or or what offense you're on. It's how can I get these personalities all to come together and mold themselves um, and and play as one unit because they all have egos, but you got to figure out how you can play as one unit. You spoke of Parcells. He was at West Point when Coach K was at West Point also. So they're, and, they're, they were close friends. And Bobby Knight, obviously, yeah. point, right? So, yeah. I mean, you know, you got guys who – look, it is – if you can't handle – there are a lot of people who believe – and I heard Brooks was this way, thinking about like 1980, right, with the Olympic team, greatest coaching job arguably in the history of sports – and, you know, there was always that thing, which I, I thought Kurt Russell did a great job with what a movie that is with Miracle yeah. playing. But like, if you can't handle me in here, how are you going to handle the Russian team out there? Right. Yeah. And it's like if you if I'm the worst problem that you have and Bill Parcells coached that way, like if you can handle me, the other team is going to be no problem comparatively. Yeah. But for well, Rob Thompson, I always said uh, no, practice. Practice was the easiest thing playing at Duke. That's you know, right. The game, the game was the easiest thing. <laughs> practice was like so. I, I look forward to games. It was the practices that was you know that was the worst part. I, I appreciate you, man, so much for doing this. Best of luck with everything you're doing. Have fun at the game tonight, most importantly, and good luck to your fills, Bill. Thank you. Thank you. Take care, Case.
There he is. One of the great people in sports appreciate him and one of his smartest too. Billy King kind enough to join me here on the show. Jim Duquette going to be here in about 10 minutes. Speaking of GMs who know a thing or two about sports. What, what a gr- what a great conversation. First of all, I got a chance to work with Billy uh, at Turner. He was with us for, I did a couple of years of a uh, bunch of shows with him over at NBA TV. And he's just such a, such a smart cerebral guy. And I think when you come from the coaching legacy of, of coach K and you see the way that he leads, I mean, clearly you get such an advantageous you know perspective in life because there's just that guy's off the charts in terms of separating himself, but there's different kinds of leadership. I mean, just to give you a couple examples of through my career, things that as he's bringing it up, I'm thinking about, I've mentioned this on, on this show before. I don't remember why it came up, but, maybe when the guardians were playing, we're talking about Tito, but got a chance in 2004, the first job I had in this sport to cover Terry Francona and the Red Sox and be there every day down the stretch and watch the way this guy does his job. And there's a personal nature in which he handles everything with the players and the communication with the players that it did not surprise me to see him go over to, at the time, the Cleveland Indians and have the success that he did. But one thing that I heard specifically, and here's a good example of being good people and where, you know, hey, look, you could you could be a great baseball or a, a hockey or football you know, coach, but are you a great manager? You could be a coordinator. Are you a great manager? But Manny Acta, who's a terrific third base coach, great coach in this game and, and terrific dude, and has been a long time. Um, he was the manager of the Indians before Tito came in. And I remember being at that spring training complex the first two days I was down there. And I mean, Tito had only been there, I think it was like a week into spring training. He had been there long. And every player was saying, you know, behind the scenes, you could tell in like a week the difference because Tito wasn't delegating when he had to give bad news. If he's going to cut a guy or not start a guy or, hey, look, maybe you're not getting the playing time you think you are. Or, hey, you're going to have to earn a job or whatever it might be. He was in his office or on the field with his arm around the player having the conversation. He wasn't sanding Sandy Alomar Jr. or somebody else in the staff to do it. And little things like that, players will tell you, are just huge difference makers because, like you can imagine, it's no different than an office. If you got to get bad news, you don't want to hear it from, you know, somebody who's your immediate superior if it's coming down from above. You'd love that person to say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's what you need to do better. And here's how you can get back to whatever the case you know, may be, wherever you're getting demoted from or whatever they're doing to you. And players, they really, they really respond, even if it's bad news. And I think most humans are this way if you're getting it direct. I mean, that's what leadership is about. It's about having to tell people things that are not great. But you have to do it and you have to be able to explain, hey, here's how you can make sure this doesn't happen again. Here's how you're going to get better. Joe Girardi's got all the things you could ever want for being a great manager in this sport. He's been a great manager in this game for a long time. Great baseball guy. He's got all the X's and O's, but he also has people skills, but he's a different natured human just by the way he is. Then Rob Thompson seems to be a little bit more of a softer guy, a little bit more of, of, you know, a guy who's going to have a personal feel the way Dusty Baker seems to manage. And and look, I, I know Dusty a long time personally, not a surprise to me because I've seen him and I've seen him work and seen him, you know, behind the scenes and how he treats humans. So it's not a shock, but that it is, it is, it's not rocket science people. It is about managing people, especially with the egos. Like managing an office or a branch at a bank is difficult. Imagine managing players that are making way more money than you. They think nothing you got to say means anything. They got no respect for anything you got to say. 
because they're making whatever millions and zillions of dollars and they got the sponsorships and the commercials and you don't and the team's about you and they'll go up to the GM office in an NBA and say, hey, look, I'm going to go get you fired because I want a different coach anyway. I mean, that stuff's not easy to deal with. You got to be able to earn their respect. Respect is always, it's, it's always earned, not given. But a lot of times with these athletes, it's even more difficult to do. It's something that I've said this before, that Dusty's always been able to kind of jump that scale a bit because he's a guy who hit behind Hank Aaron, who's done everything you can imagine as a player in the game. So because of that, these players know that. They know the pedigree, and it's going to cut that down, that amount of things that he's got to do. But for Rob Thompson, what a terrific job that he's done with this Phillies team, a team that will send Noah Syndergaard to the hill in game number three. It'll be Lance McCullers on the other side coming up just after 8 o'clock Eastern time tonight on Halloween in Philadelphia, if there ever was going to be an atmosphere that's going to be bananas, you put those two things together and you're going to get dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria, as they said in Ghostbusters. And that's why the beginning of this game will be interesting to watch tonight. We talked about going back as we dig into here game three. Talked about game two with Framer Valdez. Biggest difference between him last year, two short starts out each time before the end of the third inning. And the guy we're seeing now is what? It's the, the curveball. No, it's kind of the same. The stuff, kind of the same. In here, the emotions are much more under control. He's way more under control with all of the environmental things that are going on around him and being able to have it improve and embrace it to improve his performance, not affect it. Not go middle-middle because he's overthrowing a fastball. Not put himself where the, the touch in the field of breaking ball is not where it needs to be and he's walking guys, all that sorts of stuff, right? Not getting too hot. Not getting too cold the way you need to be if you're going to be a successful pitcher in this game. But Noah Syndergaard's a guy who's ridden on emotion in the past, and he's used it to his advantage. You go back to a guy who was telling Alcides Escobar, why don't you come 60 feet, six inches, and throwing up and high over his head, you know, it just started a World Series game. Like, so we know that he'd been that guy, but he doesn't have that kind of stuff anymore. And because of that, the ego is not the same. So what kind of emotions is Noah Syndergaard going to be feeling before this game? How's he going to handle them? He cannot right now ride a fastball the way he used to. He's a sinker ball pitcher. So if Noah Syndergaard starts trying to rev it up and you see him two, three ticks above, you know, people always get this wrong. When you watch a guy who usually throws 93, 94 miles an hour and you see 96, 97 at the beginning of a playoff game, a lot of times fans will make the mistake and go, oh yeah, he's ready tonight. Oh, he's rocking. He's into it. Yeah, that's all true. But usually what happens is the next pitch that you just saw after the radar gun is gone the other way, about 120 exit velocity, because they don't throw that hard. And when they do, now all of a sudden they're finding middle-middle with that fastball and they're losing that grip and that, that, that control. For Noah Syndergaard right now, ironically, he's a control pitcher. He's a sinker ball pitcher. He's got to use breaking stuff. He's going to have to use you know and rely on JT Real Muto to, to work counts and find his way through hitters. How deep can he go into a game? I have no idea, but he can't with this fastball the way it is now get the ball up. He's got to have those Astro hitters getting in the ground because for all the slug we've talked about with the Philadelphia Phillies and everything we make at a Citizens Bank Park, don't think the Astros with Altuve and Bregman and Alvarez and Tucker and, and Pena and McCormick and pretty much everybody can go rope it out of the yard out at CBP because they can get it going, especially if that ball's flying out there tonight with the weather. So, they so Syndergaard's got to be very, very careful to keep that ball down. He is not the pitcher he used to. If you have not seen him pitch in years and you don't follow the Astros and you were a, a Met fan and you haven't seen what's gone on, this is a totally different dude. He's going to be pitching totally differently 
not heaters up in the zone trying to get you to chase or challenging you. Now you're going to find him trying to really change eye levels and put you in a spot where you're swinging and bouncing that ball into the ground. How effective he is early in this game. Going to be interesting to see how Rob Thompson manages because to the point that was made earlier with Mark Feinstein, if you missed it and he's right, now it's Suarez who can go 20, 25 pitches more because he gets the extra day, maybe get some depth out of him in game four. They will be able to ride the bullpen a little more here in game three. But if Syndergaard is out of it early and they're down in the game for nothing, you know, he may go to those B horses until the offense find itself back in an A game. Because he knows that, hey, look, I got to come out of here with two out of three at minimum and find myself another one, all five at, at Citizens Bank so far. I don't think anybody's got you know delusions and who knows, but anything can happen. But I don't think anybody's looking at saying, OK, we're going to win all three of these against Houston. Right now, you're put in a spot with Syndergaard going in game three, where to Mark Feinstein's point earlier in the show, this may be one that right now heavily favors Houston. If the Phillies can get into it in the middle of this game, and even though you don't usually use the steel one at home, but steel one when to start with Syndergaard, right? Turn this thing back around to your horses, which includes Suarez, who's terrific all year long. We'll go in game four. Even though Javier is difficult to hit, you're going to be in a better spot. So we'll see how that develops. Obviously, the lineup wise, you expect to see pretty much what you're used to. You go back to the game one lineups probably on both sides. Jose Altuve going to be one to watch. Had three hits in game two. We saw the ninth inning of game one. Had that pop fly single. Wondered whether or not that would turn him around. Obviously, it effectively did. Had three hits in game two. If Altuve gets going, it's a far tougher lineup to deal with. How do they get you know the most and maximize what you get out of Jordan Alvarez, who has not been as effective as much of a factor, clearly, as he was in the first three games in that Mariners series where it looked like he was the best hitter on the planet. Can that guy kind of refine himself? And is this a matchup against Syndergaard that may be able to do that for Alvarez? And then there's kind of the guy who gets forgotten in Kyle Tucker at two home runs in game one. Here's a guy when you're stealing 25 bases, hitting 30 homers, playing good outfield, left-handed hitter. You're very much like Valdez in the rotation who gets forgotten because of the Cy Young that Verlander's about to win at age 39. People forget about just how dominant Tucker is of a player now at this point early in his career because he's nestled in that lineup behind Alvarez and Bregman and Altuve and Pena tells you just how deep and offensively potent the Astros are for all the talk we talk about with the Phillies and the slug. We continue here on another episode of October Unfiltered. Jim Duquette to join me here in a couple of minutes. Remember, you can hop on board live throughout the course of our show on the chat three ways. One, pop open on the Twitter box at Casey Stern. Two, my YouTube, which you can get and subscribe to in my Twitter bio. And three, at Believes, B-L-E-A-V, on YouTube as well. And you could get to us and give your comments along the way. We'll pop those on board. Of course, if you are listening on Apple, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcasts and belated, you can get me at Casey Stern on Twitter and bring your thoughts as well as we continue to preview game number three as uh, the streets of Philadelphia will be uh, uh, laden with costumes and crazies and fanatics. And uh, for all of us who will uh, not be watching there, it'll feel much quieter and safer no matter where you're watching this game for game three as uh, we get a chance uh, here on the show on October Unfiltered. Welcome in my good friend, Jim Duquette. Duke, appreciate you doing this again today, sir. How are you? Jace, good to see you, man. So, so let, me, let, me, let, me start, let me start here. Um, as somebody who watched big crowds and... You know, you sit there and you watch from years ago as a GM, New York, and the effect that Shea would have back in the day, right? And you think about all the different places you and I have been. We've been on the road for many years together and covered. 
How much impact can a place like Philly with what they're bringing right now really have on a game tonight or on the next three games in this series? Truly. I, I think it, I think it, it um, here's the thing that the offense for the, uh, first off, they have a lot They've scored. Their, their, their slug is versus 200. Uh, their, their five runs a game. In those five offense is a different look. Like the pitching part throughout, not in the first two games, two games of this series, better than I, I thought. But it's their offense eat off of that crowd in the field. So I think that that putting a lot of times you you not seen it like the home field advantage. There hasn't been a advantage a lot. A lot of certain circumstances and fill in advantage. Yeah, I always go back to you and I watch it, Madison Bumgarner. And I know you've seen a lot more baseball than I have, but certainly I think in the postseason, anything I've watched in person, nothing like that. Where you and I are sitting there next to each other, he's in now. I know it's Kansas City. No offense to the Kaufman, uh, but doing that on the road, uh, you you never know how all this is going to play out. But you don't know at all what you're getting out of Syndergaard. Different pitcher, not going to be the guy, you know, Alcides Escobar come at me 60 feet, 6 inches, going after you with high fastballs and challenging you. He's going to try and use a pitch mix. He's going to try and get that sinker and, and, and basically get you to belt it into the ground and get you through three, four innings. Uh, how much confidence, if any, do you have that you get that at a Syndergaard? Just how dicey is this of a proposition to put him against that Astros lineup in this kind of this environment and a small park like Philadelphia tonight, dude? That'd be you know, the great, uh, you know, what, what Rob Thompson said, he, he was basically because he has postseason experience. You and I were there, we saw it. God, like, right, the high velocity that, that was store come at me bring, bring it he's not that pitcher anymore right so any question for me is is guys they don't generally do well against like the lineup for them so they were just okay in the last uh, but now that Altuve started to see some signs with Elvarez that it's been good we know what pain has been like pretty consistent and all, all the way, and Tucker. This offense is ready to just bust out in this like next two. Now Suarez is, you know, his been can't expect him to go deep game. So I feel like like that the offensive type of game certainly today, and um, I think think in the rest of this series control that offense is going to be. Yeah, you know, Rob Thompson going to go after if he got a chance to win. And I love that. I love the urgency that he's bringing because we have seen so many times, you know, and I brought up a couple of days ago something, another situation where he sat next to you watching this, but where Dave Roberts, Doc, and he adjusted after this, but his first World Series appearance, watched you Darvis go down 5 nothing before he put Kershaw on a game in Game 7 and was four brilliant innings is too late by then. you you got to be able to make that hook and do the right time. Rob Thompson has been so aggressive and so all over that. But how difficult is that when you've got to be so perfect, Duke? Like, they need to be with all... He needs Alvarado to be great every time. He needs Eflin to be great every time. He needs Dominguez to be great every time. And he needs Robertson to be great every single time. Right? The Astros have more margin for error with their bullpen, even though it's dominant than the Phillies do. 
as aggressive as Robert Thompson is, how much is it, E, I don't know, does that bite him somewhere here where just one of those guys doesn't have it? They almost got to be perfect, Duke, for this series, for the Phillies to win it. Yeah, you know, if they have a lead tonight, as we're getting in, and in some when finishing the game, that was, I think, or Dominguez. Robertson came in, I think there's an earlier spot in the, in the game factors in, maybe towards the bottom. They're going to need one more, more guy. I don't think has three. And so that's where Blakely or Bilotti, one of those two guys, Wilson's being used or Kyle Gibson. It's, not, it's gotten sideways. Phillies. And and that makes it those, And that's what makes it difficult, too. Uh, if, if it's um, and, and along those lines of, of this Pathway that their offense carries them. What we saw in game four of the NFL Suns and they had the, the homers. To see it at the, in the World Series, difficult against that Astros pitch. I, I got two more for you. One, I, I've been in, you know, look, I asked Fine Sanders earlier in the show. He said he wasn't sure. Mike Stanton didn't remember it. I'm trying to ask. I'm not covering the game 20 years, but I watched it a long time. I never knew the rule of the grandfathered bat thing even existed. I didn't know that you could do that. It sounds dumb to me. Why can Albert Pujols use the bat, but Maldonado can't? I know it got a lot made of it that shouldn't have been because of the Astros of 2017. I get that. But how is there a rule that allows one guy to use a bat, Duke, and another not to? Doesn't this seem like something we should get rid of? That to me, and I get applications like okay, I, I do it. You can't, can't you use that bat. bat you make it clear to if we're gonna grandfather saying it's your bat, buddy. Uh, and maybe there's a every single year if you're gonna do a grand grandfather. It's a little way different. Too, if you remember, obviously, they let they went before they retired. It's Mo Rivera, where who else at that time got you? Who was the last one? Mo Vaughn was one, but Butch Husky, but so they Butch Husky gonna say Butch, but I'm like, <laughs> yeah, forget Butch, Mr. Freckles. <laughs> but I would say that, um, yeah, those types. Of rules when it it's really difficult those things to go on and Albert I I in this situation um, and in, did it really today no I mean, of, like, of course like, not like I a, mean come on no. it's but it's but it's the Astros so yeah. therefore nobody gonna you know you're gonna have people dressed as garbage cans tonight for for yeah. this game I expect among who knows what else is going to happen. Uh, last one for me when, cause I'm just curious and I've been, I've been, you know, banging this drum now for two days. It's such a minor thing, but I, I don't, I don't understand why Veerling and, and pain and Sosa are in the game. I, for me now I get, this is what you always did. I watched Bryson start of a 10 pitch at bat against Verlander when the inning, they cut it five, three, and I know he made out, but he continued to work Verlander who then was tired. And the next inning came up and gave up the rest of the lead. He's cold off the bench. He gets a 10 at pitch at bat in the last game in game two. 
Piaskin should have had Sosa's throw. It's not, it's, I don't care that it was not high. I mean, come on. It was it, that yeah. May 8th, yes. you got to make that play. I don't care about it. in the postseason, you better make that play. But are you surprised that Stott's not at this point in the lineup every day with the kind of at-bats he's having? Because if it's me, when Valdez comes back around in this series, Stott's starting that game for me, and I probably would start March too. Yeah, I think I would too. I understand, you know, sometimes you go through, all right, we're going we're gonna to give, you know, i tell you what. Yeah, you know, I know you used to be uh, um, for Valdez is real. Like, yeah. You know, He's in his ERA as an H well in the World Series. But this year, he's gone onto a mental skills uh, I mean, some of these tough things. So, the story of trying to get other guys into the, into the line, but it doesn't make sense to me. It should point point. Uh, those guys are. And, you know, so instead of going for, in for. Alec Baum late at the third base. And I'm both defensively, but I asked Rob Thompson about it. He goes, Dance with Baum. Uh, it's going to come around in the lineup again. But so said, we'll go, we'll go to him late. Be seeing so And really, it, it might be really for me. I'd say be with Schwarber, like a big lead or something. Um, you know, and, and let. Marsh, better center fielder. Anyway, uh, should be by the platoons at this point. Now I'm with you, Duke. I'm with you. Enjoy Game Three. I I don't know what the hell. Look, it's it's fitting for Halloween. I have no idea what's going to happen because Syndergaard's in the game, and uh, you know, between that in itself is going to be, uh, you know, go get your Halloween candy. Enjoy it. I appreciate you, buddy. Thank you. I'm in. You got it, man. See you. There he is, Jim Duquette joining us. We appreciate Duke for being on board. Thanks to Mark Feinstein, Billy King along the way. You could jump on board the Unfiltered Revolution at Casey Stern. If you're listening, Apple, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcast, you can get all now 116 episodes, all the conversations, the interviews with managers and coaches and folks from three different sports and MLB and NBA and even the National Hockey League where we'll continue coverage in the other two sports after about the next week or so. But until then, we'll see you live at noon Eastern, including tomorrow, which is Tuesday, where Joe Serralo from the Believe Network and my guy, former teammate, and a thing or two, uh, knows a thing or two, I would say, about uh, getting big knocks and homers and over 500 in his career, Gary Sheffield. Shep can hop on board tomorrow live as well. Hopefully you'll be here for that and with us along the way. Thanks to the guests. Thanks to you for your support. And, of course, those who make this possible, as we, as always, and Unfiltered and October Unfiltered are presented by our good friends at Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.